Well, good morning. Good morning. It is so good to be back here in South Carolina, back at Grace Baptist Church. It's so many uh, reasons that we so dearly uh, love this church in particular, and uh, so many of you uh, that we are looking out and seeing right now. It really is just a profound joy. Uh, if you would open up your Bibles to First John. I should explain while you're getting turned there that Pastor Jamie asked about the kids and I, I made an over-my-shoulder motion that was not pointing to the balcony. Uh, that was pointing to Washington State. Uh, they are not actually with us on this trip, so uh, perhaps another time we'll come back with them, but it's just Shelby and I this time. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into these verses Pastor Jamie already read from First John. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning as people with many things happening. There's a church here that's been working hard, diligently, honorably to put together a major undertaking in this general assembly. There are those who have traveled to be here for that, that arrived early and maybe a bit exhausted, maybe carrying weight of things going on back home. Lord, whoever we are and however you brought us here, you've brought us to your word. And Lord, we desperately need to see your gospel in that word today. Lord, there are discouraged people here. Would you encourage them with the comforts of your word? There are, there are drifting people here. Would you grab hold of them with Christ from the word there are people who feel encouraged this morning who don't know what providence holds, even as we've already prayed this morning for those who are experiencing deaths in their family that they in no way saw coming. Lord, would you use the word to prepare your people for whatever you know is coming into their lives? Lord, they're lost here. Would you save them through the power of your word? We pray these things in the name of the Jesus to whom we look, the one who is even called the Word made flesh. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. What happens in heaven when we sin on earth? What is the reaction that's produced? Is there shame that an adopted son or daughter of God would treat their redeemed status as something so cheap? Does Jesus, the risen and ascended Lord, wince and shake his head, disappointed that you let him down again? There's a painting that used to hang in the Louvre in Paris that depicts how we often think about our sin. It shows a chess game being played between this, this forlorn-looking man and the devil. The man is downcast. He's, he's looking at the board without hope because he knows he's been beaten. And the devil is smiling from the other side. The painting is called Checkmate. Checkmate is, of course, the moment in the game when you've got no moves left. The other player has you no matter what you do. Checkmate 
is what we imagine often happens when we sin. But what does God's word say happens in heaven when we sin on earth? My little children, 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We just read verses so good and so gracious that honestly, I would feel uncomfortable even suggesting them if they were not inspired by God himself. This is not a text that you just read through. This is a text that if you are understanding it, you worship your way through. Three headings will help us to do that as we go through it. First, we're going to see our childlike stumbling Second, we're going to see our lion-like advocate. And third, we'll see our lamb-like propitiation. So we begin with our childlike stumbling. The text starts out, my little children. Why little children? Well, that certainly says something to us about the tender, fatherly, and pastoral care of the Apostle John. John loves in his book which I'm preaching through right now at King's Cross Church in Kirkland. Uh, so I've been seeing this. He, he loves to use terms like children, little children, beloved. He uses something like that 15 times in his epistle. So whatever he's saying is being said with pastoral, fatherly care. But there's something else about little children that makes what he says in these verses and in the ones that follow so very norm, uh, necessary for us. Little children are prone to stumble. Uh, back there at King's Cross, we're blessed with a number of little ones. I trust the same is here, uh, true for you here at GBC. And um, just imagine for a moment, if we were to take all the chairs out of this room, you've switched to chairs from pews, so we could actually do this now if you want to. So you could take all the chairs out of this room, and we lined up all the church toddlers right up here to have a race. And we said... Go. You would not see a bunch of little children just arms pumping, eyes on the prize, tracking a straight line to the back of the sanctuary. Rather, you would have instant chaos. Some would stumble left, some would stumble right, some would turn around and run this way, some would sit down, some would cry, some would run into each other. It would be complete pandemonium. So, how is this relevant? Well, in 1 John, the Christian life is repeatedly described as a walk. We're called to walk in the light as he is in the light in chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 6, which Pastor Jamie helpfully read for me, makes what that looks like very specific. See, we're still on the same wavelength, brother. Chapter 2, verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
The, the he in that verse is, is Jesus, so there it is. There's the path. There's the Christian life. It's as clear as the GPS on your phone drawing that clear blue line from point A to point B, walk like Jesus. And so what do we as Christians do? Do we set off like it's the Boston Marathon, perfect form, arms pumping, feet striding, unwavering, unerring, never stumbling? Or are we a lot more like those little children, prone to stumble off course? Well, what do we sing? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There are two dangerous ways that I want to point out that we stumble in our understanding of the Christian life. And specifically in our understanding of our sin. Some are tempted to take a casual view of sin. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think that because salvation, John has taught us already in this epistle, is for sinners. If we deny our sin, the truth is not in us, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we make him a liar, chapter 1, verse 10. In verse 9, it's the confessors of sin, it's the admitters of sin, it's the non-deniers of sin that find God faithful and just to forgive all their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. It's the admitted sinners who are saved in those verses. So fine, maybe you say, let's be sinners. Because Jesus cleanses me from all that. God is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. So why not take a very casual view of my sin? Well, the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is staggeringly free. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. Our sins are dealt with by Christ forever. Praise God. That's all true. But in our childlike propensity to stumble, we take a glorious truth and we do something with it that God never intended. We make it a license to sin. We let it make us casual toward sin. But what did John say in our first verse from chapter 2? My little children, I write these things so that you may not sin. You see that? John's intention in so highlighting the grace of God is not that the grace of God, well it is that the grace of God would lead us increasingly out of sin, not deeper into it. Because chapter 1, verse 7 is still true. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God's people walk in the light. A casual view of sin is never an indication that you are a true confessor of sin. Truly cleansed, walking in the light. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Being casual about sin is actually incompatible with being a true confessor. Of sin. And John goes after that potential misunderstanding in those verses right after our section today in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. He talks about the commandments of God. He talks about walking as Jesus walked, how that's related even to knowing we are in him. So, so John's going to come after that potential stumble, that way that we're prone to wander. But not yet at this point in the book. Right now, he's coming first to those who are tempted to stumble in a very different direction. Not for those who have become casual about sin, 
but for those who are devastated by it. Those who can't quit the condemnation they feel, and even if they believe that they have God's legal forgiveness, they can never believe that they have his loving smile. Maybe that describes you. Maybe you're the sort of Christian who believes that your salvation deserves an asterisk. A little footnote saying, yeah, this one's saved, but only barely. And the feelings of devastation that you feel are always most acute when you know you've sinned. To return to the question we started out with, what happens in heaven when we sin on earth? Does God groan? Does Jesus wince? Does the Spirit grieve? Don't get me wrong. There is a biblical, necessary, kind doctrine of fatherly discipline. Of grieving the Spirit. Of treating the very blood of Jesus as something cheap. That doesn't have claims over your life. But those realities are revealed for a reason. And that reason is to convict the unconvicted. It is not to condemn those who are already feeling bitterly condemned. Rather, God comes to you in a text like this. To his precious child. His redeemed son. His saved daughter. And he says, yes, you've stumbled. Yes, your sin is a stumbling. No one is denying that. But in addition to the stumbling of your sinning, you've stumbled a second time. Because you've neglected to remember what happens if anyone does sin. It's good to admit you've sinned. It's good you feel remorse for sin. It's good to confess and repent. But look. Just look at what happens in heaven when you sin on earth. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And so we come to our second heading to see our lion-like advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous is a name and a title pulsing with meaning. Matthew 1.21, an angel said in a dream to Joseph about Mary, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The very name Jesus tells us God saves. Pre-birth, this is what the angel was sent to save from God. Jesus is come to save his people from their sins. And to this proper name is affixed the title Christ. Jesus Christ, which means Messiah. Jesus is Savior because Jesus is Messiah of God. Promised just after the fall in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the snake. Predicted and prefigured again and again throughout the Old Testament. The better prophet, the better priest, the better king. The answer to every hanging question as to whether God's covenant people would be faithful and receive his blessing. Or be unfaithful and receive his curse. The answer is that that God became man in Jesus, Messiah, and suffered our curse so that we could receive his blessing. 
But well, the glorious is the name Jesus. And the title Christ are to us. The emphatic statement about him in our verse is not just that he is Jesus. And not just even that he is Jesus the Christ. But Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteousness of Christ is his moral perfection. In one sense, this could evoke to us the human, earned, law-obedient righteousness of Jesus that is imputed to us in our salvation. We know Jesus had to die for us. That's a gospel basic. We do a pretty good job of holding on to and keeping central. But we often neglect the truth that Jesus also had to live for us. Just as much as we've been saved by the death of Christ, we've been saved by the life of Christ. Just as much as my sin was imputed to Jesus on the cross and he was treated like he had committed my sins even though he had not, so too Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me and I am treated like I had lived his perfect life even though I did not. Jesus had to be a true man, born of a woman, and truly die in our place. And just, just as much, Jesus had to be a true man, born of a woman, and truly live in our place. It is the earthly, perfect, law-keeping righteousness of Christ that is imputed to our account. Thus Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is all marvelously laid out for us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But is this all the title Jesus Christ the righteous should evoke in us. I don't think it is. I think we are actually being pointed even to the transcendent, inherent, moral perfection of Jesus who is not just truly man, but is truly God. And to the way that our logic would conclude, he would be the last one to plead the case of sinners. Because the better the person, the more sensitive to and offended they are by the sin. The cleaner the person, the more averse they are to a mess. In various religions and cultures of the world that hold to a caste system, it's often the case that the the higher the caste, the more avoidance there is of those lower in the caste system. There's one ancient system where the lowest of society could not interact with the higher at all and the very highest were so set apart that for one of those lowers to step even on the king's shadow brought the sentence of instant death. We know of ourselves that we're sinners. We know of Jesus that he is Christ the righteous. And so what are we to think happens in heaven when we sin on earth? I will readily admit that there are many things about science that I absolutely do not understand. One of them is that I cannot really, not really explain to you why magnets work the way that they do. Um, I know they're supposed to stick together, but I also know if you get one flipped around, it has the opposite effect. 
Flipped one way, magnets reject each other. Flipped the other way, they are drawn to one another. Here's my point. Some of us have Jesus' righteousness flipped around. We think that like stepping on the king's shadow and having him be repulsed by the affront, he's righteously repelled from us. Brothers and sisters, we've got it flipped. His righteousness draws him to us, even in our sins. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I want to emphasize that we have is in the present. It does not say we, we had an advocate as though this is simply reflecting on the historic accomplishments of the gospel 2,000 years ago. It does not say we will have an advocate at the final judgment that in the end Jesus will stand with us. Both of those are gloriously true. This text is saying something else. It's saying something for now. It's saying we have an advocate. Christian, this is something happening for you today, right now. Don't just think of Jesus as a historic character in a book predicted or, or, or some kind of a, a predicted deliverer for the future. Get a sense of the present reality of Jesus. Jesus Christ is in heaven, but he's not dead. Jesus is alive. Right now, he rose, he ascended, he stands there in body and in soul as real as we are right now. He knows you. He knows me. We have right now the resurrected but glorified and still incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ the righteous, in heaven for us. The mission of redemption he was given from his father. The love he has for us is such that his righteous moral perfection draws him to us. Even in our sins. So the text says we have right now an advocate. A paraclete with the father. And when we understand what that word really means, it's staggering. It's the person who in your moment of crisis you suddenly realize is standing next to you, standing with you, advocating on your behalf. In ancient Greek law, if you were accused of a crime, you could call a paraclete to stand with you and testify on your behalf. We might think of it today as a defense attorney who pleads our case. And so this verse is telling us that rather than shaking his head in disgust when we sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Jesus doesn't walk away from us. He gets right down beside us and pleads our case. We don't have to call him in. We already have him. He's not the prosecutor arguing against us. He's the advocate arguing for us. And if the devil, that roaring lion seeking someone to devour, if Satan, the accuser, opens his mouth to accuse this redeemed child of God, our lamb-like advocate shuts him up and says, this one's mine. That's what happens in heaven when we sin on earth. Jesus is not repulsed away from us. He is drawn out in love 
and comfort and advocacy to us. For we do not have a high priest, Hebrews 4.15, who is unable to sympathize with us with our weakness. The great Puritan pastor and author Thomas Goodwin wrote an entire book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. It's largely an unpacking of that Hebrews text showing that sympathize with our weakness includes his heart of care for us even when we do stumble and sin. Goodwin writes this, and and I just want us to think. As Christians in the Reformed tradition who subscribe to a Puritan confession of faith, I want us to think and to ask if we have the same conception of the goodness and kindness of Jesus Christ as the Puritans. Because this is what they wrote. Thomas Goodwin. There is comfort concerning such infirmities in that your very sins move him to pity more than anger. His hatred shall fall, but only upon the sin to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. His affections shall be drawn out to you, and this as much as when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Now, Goodwin's point is, of course, not to sin that grace may abound. Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin continue to live in it? Romans 6, 1 and 2. As I already said, John in his epistle is coming for those who take a casual view of sin. He will not let us stay in that position and think we're right with God. But right now, he's coming to the devastated, convicted sinner, and he is saying, Your sin has not cut you off. Jesus Christ the righteous is advocating for you. He's doing it right now. And the text says he's doing it with the Father. The picture is that of a judge before whom we stand and with whom our paraclete is advocating on our behalf. Treasure that truth, but read it in a Trinitarian way. Because we need to be very, very careful that our understanding of the three persons of God and the various roles they play in redemption never lead us to believe that there is any conflict or diversity of purpose within the triune God. Our God is still one, indivisible in his will, purpose, and plan. Jesus as advocate with the Father does not mean that Jesus is kinder than the Father. It doesn't mean Jesus is the merciful Savior while his Father is the vengeful vengeful judge. There is no love Christ has for us that is not shared completely to the hilt by his Father and by the Spirit. And there is no wrath we had to be saved from that was any lesser in the Son and the Spirit than it was in the Father. The gospel is not just the good news of Jesus. The gospel is the good news of the Trinity. Each person purposed it for us. Each person's love ordained it. Each person's wrath required it. And each person played and plays their appropriate role in accomplishing and applying it. There is a Trinitarian distinction of function in the gospel. There is never a Trinitarian division of purpose. So is Jesus our advocate with the Father? Yes, he is. That's what the text says. But think about it like this. There was a kind judge who adopted an orphan The orphan loved his father, the judge, and the adoptive elder brother that was now also part of his family. 
But the orphans sinned grievously against this new family. And at a hearing to discuss what was to be done, he was sure his father, the judge, would cut him off and cast him out. But when he stood there in the courtroom, full of devastated sorrow, he realized a presence to his side. It was his elder brother standing beside him as his advocate, even wrapping a supportive arm around his shoulders. And looking to the judge, our adopted orphan was shocked not to see anger in his father's eyes and not annoyance or surprise that the brother showed up to try to argue the charges away. The orphan sees a knowing look and beaming love between the father and the son. And then the same from them both upon him as well. Because what the orphan doesn't know is that the father, the judge, and the son, the advocate, already met in the judge's chambers. And in love, they already purposed to pardon their adoptive son and brother. And the elder brother even offered to incur whatever cost and bear whatever guilt justice might require in the place of the adoptee. And so in the courtroom, yes, the father says, what's this? An advocate stands with you? Do you really plead on his behalf? But the judge is asking with a knowing smile, with with eyes of pride for the costly, sacrificial love being displayed. He rejoices, the, the father rejoices when the elder brother says, yes, I am. I'm here to stand as advocate. I'm not ashamed of this one. And it's the father's joy as well to assure the one-time orphan he remains an orphan no more. Now, I know the first rule of illustrating the Trinity is a very good rule. It goes like this. Do not illustrate the Trinity. (laughs) The best illustration of the Trinity is that our God, our triune God, is unillustratable. There's no one like our God. But the point of my little story is not to illustrate the Trinity, but rather to illustrate the complete unity of the Father and the Son in the Son's advocacy with his Father on our behalf. But if we were to stop there, we'd miss something that still remains and that is essential to filling in the full implications of the text. Having seen our childlike stumbling and our lion-like advocate, we need to see, lastly, our lamb-like propitiation. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I've mentioned a few times that our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, stands with us and enters a plea on our behalf, but we have not yet heard that plea his plea is not that you know we just we didn't really sin no the entire occasion of the text is if anyone does sin does sin the sin is very real and his plea is not that we just didn't really mean it and we're going to do better from now on we did mean it and we will stumble again 
His plea is, is not that when weighed out against the good things that we've done, the sin really shouldn't be counted as that serious of an issue. Sin is deadly serious. God is perfectly holy. Any sin is enough to condemn. No, his plea is none of that. His plea isn't actually about us at all. His plea is himself. Himself in our place. Our lion-like advocate's defense of us when we sin is his own lamb-like death. Specifically, his work of propitiating the wrath of God when he suffered on the cross. He says, this sin can't be charged against this one. Not for any good or restitution in them. It can't be charged against them because I am the propitiation for their sin. Propitiation means satisfaction. It means that whatever holy, exacting, infinite justice sin provoked is satisfied by the death of Christ. It means that whatever divine wrath once rightly hung over our heads fell on Christ's cross when he there made propitiation. He has fully satisfied the wrath of God. Like the lambs of the ancient altars of Israel were were sacrificed for sin. Their blood was shed. Their life was forfeit in the place of the sinner. Our better priest offered himself once but effectual forever as the better sacrifice, his better blood shed, his better life forfeit in the place of sinners. That's his plea when we sin. He pleads his own propitiation. We are counted forgiven Because Christ was counted guilty. We are pardoned for our crimes we commit because Jesus was punished for them. Never, ever confuse the gospel of Jesus Christ with leniency. God did not just arbitrarily decide to be lenient about sin and thus we may be forgiven. God was anything but lenient with his son On the cross. The Son became a curse for us. Galatians 3:13. He was made to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 2, 5:21. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. And lest you ever doubt that the all-sufficient death of Jesus was enough to be the propitiation for your sin, yours, very specifically, dear, despairing, doubting Christian, have no fear. The death of Jesus was sufficient not for your sins only, but what does verse 2 say? He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. True enough, Jesus died to actually accomplish the salvation of those the Father gave him. Not just to make salvation possible for all without securing salvation for any. John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's a precious truth 
This doctrine of the extent of the atonement. That's a precious truth. One that matters. And it's in complete harmony with this precious truth. That also matters. The propitiation Jesus provides is sufficient for all the world. For a world of worlds. For a world of world of worlds. There is no limiting the sufficiency of the propitiation of Christ, not even for the sins of the whole world. And so, dear, despairing, doubting Christian, why do you doubt his sufficiency to pardon you? Why would you think the sins of your present aren't as eradicated by his death as were the sins of your past and will be the sins of your future? This is not making little of sin. It's making much of Christ. And so why would you, if you have not, why would you possibly not come to Jesus Christ in faith today? His arm isn't just around his brothers and sisters for whom he advocates. His arms are extended to you in a free offer of this gospel of grace, saying, come and know the Lord. Come and know forgiveness. By faith alone, trust Jesus Christ with your sin. And find that he is the propitiation, the satisfaction, the forgiveness that you need. In him you are justified. In him you are adopted. In him he will be with you, be sanctifying you, conforming you more and more to the image of Christ as you follow him as his disciple. And he will glorify you and welcome you home forever one day. His arms are out to you in gracious invitation, not on the basis of what you have done or will do, but on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a true story about that painting, Checkmate. Uh, a chess grandmaster actually visited the Louvre and he spent time staring at that painting. He stared at it and he stared at it and he stared at it. And suddenly he actually let out a cry in the middle of the museum. Wait a minute. Well, wait a minute. That's not Checkmate. The artist made a mistake. There's one move left. The king can still move. And when the king moves, the game is not lost. The game is won. Grace Baptist Church, friends who are here worshiping with us today, when you feel that your sins have put you in checkmate, there's always one move left. Look to the king. The king still moves moves. Look to Christ and find something of the truth of the words that Pastor Matt is going to lead us in in just a moment when he comes up to lead us in Jesus sinners death to receive. We're going to sing this. When a helpless lamb doth stray after it the shepherd pressing through each dark and dangerous way brings it back his own possessing. Jesus seeks thee, O believe. Jesus, sinners, does receive. Jesus, sinners, does receive. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.
We thank you for a gospel so good we would not dare to suggest such a grace were it not revealed to us. Oh Lord, protect us from stumbling. We, we need your help to not stumble off course into a shallow, low view of sin and of your holiness that would say, it's okay to be comfortable with my sin and to walk in darkness and think that I have fellowship with the God of light. Lift up to you those who are prone to forget the gospel in their moments of condemnation and regret. Oh Lord, come tenderly and remind them that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We thank you that he is the propitiation for our sins. And if he is a big enough propitiation for the whole world, oh Lord, to the individual doubting heart here this morning, oh Lord, would you convince them from your word this morning that he is sufficient for their sins as well and that they are not just begrudgingly pardoned. They are joyfully welcomed and delighted over for the sake of Christ and Christ alone. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our advocate. Amen.